Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroth. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today I'm joined by Jacob Whitish from the United Kingdom's Department for International Trade. Jacob serves as Vice Counsel for Financial, Professional, and Business Services. The Department for International Trade helps UK businesses export and grow into global markets. They also help overseas companies locate and grow in the United Kingdom. Now, when I think about business growth, business expansion, I see two ways to get there, either slowly through organic growth or instantly through acquisition. And since we focus on M&A here, we're a bit more biased in favor of the instant growth approach to doing things. That's why I asked Jacob to speak with me this afternoon to talk about opportunities for M&A, not just with UK companies coming here, but also for U.S. companies seeking targets in the United Kingdom. Good afternoon, Jacob. Welcome to M&A Masters. Thank you so much, Patrick. Great to be here, and thanks for having me on. And I promise today, Jacob, this will be a Brexit-free zone. And before we get into <laughs> all the fun stuff for uh, the Department for International Trade, let's get a little context for our listeners here. Uh, tell us what brought you to this point in your career. Sure. It's been a, a little bit of a winding route, but in all of the kind of weird different paths that I've taken, it all somehow added up perfectly to get me exactly where I needed to be. Uh, after college, I worked in the state of Washington for the, the state level government, uh, so got used to what it was like to be in these massive behemoth bureaucracies that is uh, is national politics and state level politics and from there, I saw a lot of friends that were jumping into the tech sector. They were having a great time with different startups. It was you know, a lot of fun. And I was looking a little envious, decided that I wanted to go over and figure out what was going on on that side of the, the fence, so to speak. And so taught myself some different tech skills, uh, ended up as a kind of country lead for a Canadian startup that was trying to get into the U.S. market. So ran all of the U.S. operations, did all of our marketing campaigns, and uh, effectively was kind of the, the in-country CEO. Uh, from there, went to another small fintech startup as the very first employee after the founder, handling everything on the business side. Um, and then after a little time there, went out on my own. Uh, started my own company doing marketing strategy and advertising uh, ran that for a while, ton of fun, ran it entirely distributed online. I was able to travel around the world uh, with my then girlfriend at the time, now fiance. And, uh, you know, that was a, a lot of fun, but eventually was starting to get a little bit burnt out on the just kind of endless cycle of finding more and more clients, doing everything myself and wanted to kind of find something a little bit different, something more interesting. Um, and just kind of stumbled upon this job with the Department for International Trade. And it was the right weird mix of background of government service, startups, self-employed to be able to do my job here very well. Um, I work for a government, but at the end of the day, I'm out there interacting with companies, founders, executives all day long. So it's kind of a, a interesting mix of both public and private sector. Well, when we think about international uh, activity, you know, um, cross-border M&A and so forth, we always initially think about it as it being instigated by company A, usually a multinational, or looked to be a multinational targeting company B, and it all stems from there. So uh, it, it was 
interesting and refreshing to see that you've got a government uh, controlled entity that is doing what they can to uh, accelerate the process or or, or assist uh, their their uh, in uh, domestic companies in in that kind of expansion. So that's a, a great uh, set of services that are available. Tell me about the the mission for the Department for International Trade for the UK. Sure, absolutely. Um, at the end of the day, my role is really to, I guess, primarily add economic value to the UK taxpayer. We're, we're entirely funded by taxpayers. We are a part of the actual government. So at the end of the day, we have to be able to draw some line back to having provided value to the UK. Uh, now, how we do that is a little bit more uh, freeform in terms of we can help companies expand internationally from the US to the UK and thereby adding jobs into the UK. We can help UK companies grow into the US and then therefore hopefully helping add more tax revenue back to the UK entity. Um, a lot of kind of playing matchmaker, uh, introducing different people, doing some kind of upfront market research to help help companies even understand if this is the right decision for them. Uh, one of the biggest things that I don't ever want to see is a company that's gung-ho on coming out here, spend all the o overall CapEx and uh, operational expenses and time and just all of all of this energy to try and get into a new market, only to find out that it wasn't the right market for them. Um, so hopefully, up front, we can do a lot of things like uh, helping out these companies just figure out if this is even the, the right decision for them. And then if they decide it is, hopefully make that process a little bit easier through our networks, our connections, our just experience of watching companies do it over and over again. Almost like being a, a liaison, it's an extension of the, um, uh, the ambassadorship uh, where they're coming into an unfamiliar territory. You've got a, a presence here and you can guide them and, and mentor them through the process uh, that are unique to that to that geographic location. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you could think of the the ambassador as being the political side of what we do on the commercial side. And uh, in fact, we we the Department for International Trade operates out of several different consulates and offices all around the U.S. under the purview of the ambassador. Um, but then our our kind of specific agreement is the commercial side, whereas the actual consuls general and the ambassador are a lot more about the political and policy side. And it's interesting too because you got a much more favorable or positive view of overseas expansion. Where in America we keep thinking about it as expansion means oh we're outsourcing jobs, we're outsourcing activities uh, that we should be keeping here. Conversely, uh, you're looking at well if we can expand internationally, then our UK domicile businesses can grow, and that's how it will benefit you know the home country of the com the the, uh, the headquartered company there in the UK is through through growth uh, uh, in revenues. Yeah, absolutely. There's you know we we, we don't see it as a, a win or lose scenario. There's absolutely win wins here. You know we can provide jobs for. The home country we can provide jobs in the new country that they're expanding to. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, we don't care that much as to you know exactly what this line looks like from point A to point B. As long as somewhere along the way we can say, hey, we've helped out the the UK taxpayers. So then, when you're 
describing what you do with providing information and mentoring services and informational resources. So what specific services do you provide to UK companies looking to come here? And, you know, they're coming on over here. They look to you for assistance. Specifically, what can you do for them? Sure. Um, I think I can also kind of give it a little bit bigger picture of an approach at the same time. So uh, providing a little bit more context to my specific role, which is I specialize in all things financial services. So anything from a traditional bank asset manager insurance all the way up to these brand new cutting edge fintech insure tech reg tech you name it if it touches money or the compliance of money in some way shape or form that's kind of my industry uh, geographically i represent the entire western u.s so the 11 western states uh, and then i have several colleagues across the u.s who cover different geographic regions um, now within all of those different regions each of us kind of have our own our own specialties of things that we're particularly just good at as individuals. The kind of standard sort of things would be uh, like providing access to uh, reports on like the cost of real estate or the cost of talents or even the availability of talent and how it might be distributed throughout a particular region. Um, so that would kind of fall under that heading of helping companies figure out if it's the right decision for them and where they should go. So a lot of times companies will come out. I'm located in San Francisco. Everybody wants to come out to San Francisco, San Francisco just because it's the, you know, the tech capital and people want to be out here and see the VC money and hopefully you know, magic will happen. Uh, but it's not always the right decision for everyone. For some companies, you know, Denver or Seattle or Phoenix or LA might be better choices just depending on where they are as a company, what industry they're in, and really the resources that they have available. Um, it's pretty darn expensive living out here. Uh, so not always is it the right decision for a company to come here. So that's kind of the advice and um, sort of research portion. Um, in terms of just kind of like more softer sort of resources, you know, I have my own personal network out here that I've built up. I've got different uh, organizations that we've worked with to build out this community that we can help introduce these different founders and companies into to try and help make their transition a little bit softer. And then, of course, just a very extensive network of different service providers and experts that we're able to connect people with for whatever their particular situation may be. You know, maybe it's immigration attorneys, maybe it's uh, someone to help send, set up their U.S. entity or uh, insurance or you know, M&A specialists, private equity, VC, you name it. Uh, we probably have somebody in our network somewhere that will be a good fit for connecting up those people and uh, hopefully making all that happen. So you're not just providing services to startups or super huge companies. You're, you're available for a variety of companies through whatever stage in their life cycle they're in. Yes, absolutely. It it goes the whole the whole gamut, uh, and those different services change a fair bit as you go across that different spectrum. So we've got people from, you know, maybe five or ten, just random folks in a small little one room office. Uh, they've got one round of funding under their belts, and they're eager to get into the market all the way up to some of the biggest household brand multinational names that you know anybody would have heard of. Um, at that earlier uh, earlier business stage, so the smaller companies all the way up to kind of the middle-sized middle companies or so, uh, 
a lot of that tends to be more around that advice, resources, networks, things like that. That's where it's a lot more providing a lot more value to those companies. As companies get larger, uh, they have they have the financial resources, they have their own in-house uh, specialists and experts. They don't necessarily need us to tell them what the cost of a new developer is going to be in San Francisco versus Seattle. Um, at that stage, what tends to be a lot more valuable is having a voice in policy discussions. Uh, so that's not not to say that we go and stick these people right in the room with uh, the ministers back in London, though it has happened. Um, mm. But a lot of times we'll bring experts out here or we'll bring um, different members of the government out here to do kind of a, a tour of different businesses and they want to hear usually what are what are the current concerns? What are companies seeing? What are they liking? What are they not liking? What do they wish was different? And from having those different kind of open channels of communication, then they're able to go back, the, the uh, policymakers and the government uh, officials, they're able to then go back to London. And as they're working on new policies or reviewing old policies, they've got these different connections to the, the larger institutions and have those kind of in in market points of view to pull from as they're trying to determine you know what what kinds of things are or aren't important or what directions so right now actually is a great uh, a great example where we have uh, just in about two weeks time a senior trade policy official coming out from the East Coast to do a tour of the West Coast, just talk with different institutions and see what kinds of things would be important to them in a future US-UK financial services trade agreement. Now, of course, this, they're not going to be making this agreement in the room. They're not going to be pulling these people in and saying, we promise that we're going to do this thing for you. But they, they want those voices. And um, the companies like having their voice at that table also because the, the, these are massive decisions that are going to affect them uh, pretty drastically. So having that opportunity is is a, a really great resource that we're able to provide a lot of these these larger companies. That's absolutely a channel that uh, can't be found elsewhere. So that's uh, one huge benefit. Uh, as, as I think about uh, you mentioned with the expense of uh, San Francisco, particularly, but the Bay Area in general. I keep wondering why uh, companies overseas would look to come to the U.S. just because it's prohibitively expensive, uh, less of a concern with regard to culture or language. But um, just the cost of doing business here, I can imagine the regulatory is, is pretty steep compared to other places. But what drives the demand or drives uh, U.K. companies to look to the United States for expansion? And you, you kind of nailed part of it all already in, in the question, just in terms of uh, language and ease of doing business to a certain extent are, are translatable from, especially in, in this case, from the UK, uh, but really from a lot of different countries around the world. Uh, if you don't have to change your, the language that you're working in, that's already a big benefit. Um, on top of that, you know, the US is a massive market. Most, most companies will eventually find their way to either doing business with someone in the US or full on opening a new office or trying to get access into this market. Uh, it's just such a great opportunity. And then likewise for US companies uh, looking at the UK, business laws are very friendly. Corporate tax rate is pretty darn low and falling. Um, you know, it's one of the, the largest 
uh, economies in total of in total investment uh, behind the U.S. and China. Um, so there's just like tons of great opportunities around the markets themselves. But then on top of that, when you're looking at especially UK company coming back to the the U.S., um, access to capital is a massive driver. Um, most tech startups, I think the at least the ones that are going to be larger names eventually, uh, always find their way to Silicon Valley or New York or you know, for some other sectors like life sciences going up to Boston or the payments industry out to Atlanta. Um, these companies will make their way out, out to the U.S. to just try and get that growth capital to really fuel their, uh, their overall growth as a company. Um, I think one of the kind of gaps in the market for the UK that's also a great opportunity is that there is a pretty good, pretty good amount of early stage capital around, but not as much later stage capital um, in terms of like the CBE plus rounds, these massive rounds that take a lot more kind of institutional capital and knowledge to really be able to drive those sorts of deals. Um, there's also kind of a really good component that ties into that in terms of talent. Um, tons and tons and tons of talent that have been through the entire life cycle of a company out here. Uh, they've gone from you know, two folks in a room all the way up through IPO, exited, and started over again. Uh, the UK has a great tech scene and still growing, but they don't have just as much of that sort of multi-generational founder and institutional knowledge of how do you go from this small company in one room all the way up to something like an IPO. They have a great amount of talent that is kind of going up through mid-stage and then going through different mergers and acquisitions or other sorts of liquidity events or exits. Uh, not as many that have taken it from that sort of mid-cap to, you know, massive company. So, yeah, a lot the of pool, companies. The pool of, together. yeah, I think the pool of, of serial entrepreneurs uh, every year gets deeper and deeper. And one thing that's mm -hmm. unique about being out here in Silicon Valley is that I keep seeing these people become enormously successful, enormously wealthy, and think to myself, well, they're going to get their clean exit, which we try to do with the ensuring their M&A transaction, and think they would ride off into the sunset, buy an island, go shopping for yachts <laughs> and all that fun stuff. And what do they do? They get bored. They turn right around and open up another yep. firm <laughs> and start participating. With it. And that's been going on now for the past 20 plus years. And so yeah, there is definitely that talent pool has gotten much, much deeper. Definitely, definitely. So you get a lot of people that will bring their companies out here just to try and tap into those kinds of networks and resources that come along with all of that. They're getting better. Um, they're starting to very slowly move in that direction. I'm seeing a lot more uh, founders in, in the UK network go back and start to kind of do that next generation of, of businesses. Um, it's not as mature as, say, West Coast US, but it's getting there. In the meantime, you're still going to see a ton of these companies coming out here to the US for either that access to capital, access to talent, or just access to market overall. What about the talent uh, on the entry level? And I'm thinking about this just from your opinion, slightly off topic, but uh, if a U.S. company were looking to expand 
into the UK. And there would be a need for, you know, entry level tech talent there. I'd imagine that talent pool in the, in the UK is, is broadening and deepening as well. Oh, absolutely. It, it's actually some of the best minds in, in their industries are coming out of the UK. Uh, you know, things like DeepMind and some of these great artificial intelligence and uh, deep learning companies, they're coming straight out of that Oxford, Cambridge uh, areas, right out of the universities. Um, overall, the UK definitely has pretty much anything that you're going to be looking for. You know, if you want the financial talent, London has it, as well as just kind of a nice mix of a little bit of everything. Um, you know, the Manchester Midlands area have some great kind of back-end, uh, back-office sort of talent. Scotland has the financial and asset management experience. Northern Ireland is starting to become this kind of really interesting tech sort of little paradise um, in fact, they, they've got some really great programs out there where they'll actually, the, the, the government will go out to, or I guess lack of government, sorry, uh, <laughs> will, will go out to uh, universities to work with them and create custom programs to train individuals specifically for companies if a company is willing to put a large enough investment into their local economy. And so there's some really kind of interesting little subsectors and you know, you look at whales or um, you, you get this like awesome hardware talent in the semiconductor space. And so there, there's uh, a little bit of everything all over and you can find pretty much whatever talent you want somewhere within the UK. Well, on the U.S. side, we've got this huge market. It's not only uh, large, it's wealthy and it's deeply wealthy, which attracts a lot of uh, suitors here. But it can't be all great. I, what are what are some of the challenges that companies face coming here? Not and don't just list the challenges for me, but support that with what can you do to help uh, you know companies uh, overcome these challenges? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I can kind of actually play a little bit off of that that last question even, and, and say you know that that talent is the double edged sword. Uh, out, out here, you have a ton of great talent, but it's also really expensive and in very high demand. Uh, so for a smaller company coming in, uh, especially if they've you know maybe only got a couple rounds of funding under their belts and not terribly deep pockets, uh, might be shocked at what the total comp packages are for uh, especially like really hardcore development talent. Um, but really anybody out here in the Bay Area is, is going to be a lot more expensive than somewhere else, um, which is kind of also then why a lot of times I'll be working with these companies and kind of pushing back a little bit to say, you know, is this the right place for you? you know, maybe you maybe you should look at, um, you know, Phoenix and go check out Arizona's new fintech sandbox and uh, see what you can do with that or go up to Seattle and see Idaho. what's going on up there. Idaho. Yeah, there, there's tons of great kind of second tier cities that uh, have lots of opportunities, lots of great talent, maybe not quite barrier level talent, but still great talent. Um, and even that's changing. People, people are getting sick of living here in the Bay Area and they're moving out. So those people are still looking for jobs and they're still great talent. Um, so that's definitely one of the bigger challenges within the financial services sector specifically. I would say one of the biggest things is just the regulatory environment. It is absolutely 
insane for companies coming out here that are used to having one overarching regulatory regime for the entire country. And then they get out here to the U.S. and see that there's 50 different states, which are basically 50 different countries, even though it's all one massive country. And all of a sudden, they, they just kind of get paralyzed and don't know what to do. How do you handle 50 different regulatory regimes? And not to mention just the paperwork involved in all of that, those sort of applications and um, compliance measures that are required for all of that. So that's definitely the number one thing that I hear from anyone within the financial industry is, is just trying to figure out that sort of environment. Um, now, on that side of things, there's all kinds of different opportunities like working with private equity groups to find things like reverse merger opportunities or even just straight out purchase opportunities to uh, basically find a, a com company in the U.S. that is maybe not doing so hot financially but already has those licenses in place. Um, so that's a great opportunity for companies coming into the, the U.S. to be able to, I won't say circumvent the, the rules because it's not circumventing. It, it's all perfectly legal, but sort of accelerate the process of getting into market quickly. Um, there's also different strategies like just saying, you know, target New York and California, go after the biggest economies or find local partners that you can just partner up with on deals. Um, you know, all, all of these are, are different things that we would, we would bring in a lot of the experts from our network to help identify these opportunities or to just try and figure out uh, what opportunities are available for a particular situation. Great. So you've got not only the network of service providers that you probably just, with, in addition to the service providers, you've got the law firms, you've got other advisors, and then you've got relations with p private equity firms and, and other, uh, other organizations such as that? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you're, if you are a, service provider out there or any sort of firm that works with other companies, frankly, um, you know, we, we want to have you in our network. We want to know who you are, what you're doing, where you're at, and you know, what, what kinds of companies are you looking for? And, you, you know, we may or may not have a lot of referrals for you, but maybe we will. Um, you know, that's just kind of part, part of our game is, is knowing who's out there, who's doing what how we can be of help so that when a company approaches us or gets referred into us and they say, hey, I have a problem with X, hopefully we're going to know someone who can fix X. So that's, at the end of the day, the biggest value that we can provide. Yeah, I mean, the, the analogy I have with, with that, the importance of having a good network like that and the value you add there, it's no simpler analogy than if you were to leave your home or, or your work and move across the state or to another country, you just want to find somebody that well, where's a good pizza place? Where do I go shopping? And where can I get my hair? Yeah. And, and they're really exactly. mundane things, but everybody needs them. So <laughs> I, I think that's a great source. Of, and, and it's trusted, you're a trusted uh, advisor in this because your objective is to, uh, you know, help out, uh, you know, the, the taxpayers and, and add value for the, the UK companies. And so you're uh, a real credible resource because you're looking out uh, for their best, for their best interests. The, uh, yeah. the idea on the reverse mergers is um, real uh, interesting just because 
it's it's nothing more than a workaround, but it's also if you've got owners and founders or investors that have a company that's maybe not doing well financially, they can leverage an asset that they didn't realize they had, which were their, which are their licenses that maybe they did not have as great value in them. Now suddenly there there's some great added value in in the licenses and so forth uh, to facilitate a reverse merger. So, you know, with that in mind, who's an ideal candidate? for UK companies to partner with, you know, on the reverse merger or on that, in, in, in that scope? You know, it, it really depends a lot on the company that is the, the, like the, the UK side company that's coming in and what sort of services that they're doing. You know, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for a insurance company to try and partner up with a bank because they're not going to have the same licenses. Um, so a lot of times it, it's going to be kind of the smaller to mid-sized regional institutions. Um, perhaps they've been around for a while, and maybe maybe it's a, a generational shift sort of thing. Uh, there's this great great opportunity right now where there's this massive shift from one generation to the next of assets and businesses, and sometimes the younger generations don't necessarily want to step into the family business. So you have the this older generation of maybe the, the founder who they want some liquidity to be able to go off and fund their retirement, and uh, they just don't really want to operate it anymore as the day-to-day person. So maybe this is a great opportunity for a company to come in and uh, partner with them, reverse merger with them, uh, all kinds of different sort of creative arrangements that you could find. But in the end of the day, then you have this UK company coming in, being able to very easily, relatively easily, uh, get access to these licenses, perhaps even to built-in clients. And then for the um, the the merging company, then you know they have a liquidity event. They have the ability to uh, you know, maybe if it's this kind of generational issue, walk away to a nicely funded retirement and not have to worry about it anymore. Or, you know, there, there's a lot of kind of fun, creative ways that uh, that companies can approach this and find different partners that maybe they wouldn't have even expected. Maybe it's a card issuer looking to partner up with a like small regional bank and be able to cross promote each other's products into. Uh, each other's clients. Um, it, the, the, the opportunities are really just very wide open. I was thinking just that the small regional banks as being one of those ideas or candidates out there because there there are fewer and fewer of those out here, but um, they don't want to get rolled up by the by the major banks. They prefer to have uh, something else happen. But what's what usually the situation is one regional bank is acquiring another regional bank. So I think that would be a, an ideal opportunity for uh, a UK-based uh, financial institution who wants to get a foothold where they don't have to be in New York, but they could be in, in a couple of other regions. I, I think that would be an ideal place, particularly in the South uh, and in, in some parts of California. Yeah, so, yeah, well, and it, it plays out across is, all these different Yeah, yeah, it's uh, anything. Um, the other idea I was just thinking off the top of my head, uh, accounting firms. Mm-hmm. Accounting firms, okay. wealth management, you know, anything that has some sort of licensure or governmental oversight, great opportunities. Okay. But I, I can see that it, both in the insurance agency and brokerage business and in the accounting 
space, you have a lot of independent small regional organizations. They are going through this very specific uh, generational change, and you're not having the the next generation coming in, stepping in in the shoes of the of, of the predecessor. So the, those opportunities are going to be around for the next several years. Um, what trends do you see in UK expansion to the US going forward? Um, you know, kind of overall, I've seen companies coming out a lot earlier in their life cycle used to be waiting a little bit longer, getting a little bit more mature in their home market. More and more, it's been a lot of companies coming out earlier and earlier, wanting to not quite necessarily shun their own market, but they want they want a piece of the U.S. pie earlier and earlier in their life cycles. Um, so a lot of times they'll be coming out maybe even too early at times. And I've, I've had that conversation with companies before of saying, you know, do you, do you really think that right now is the right opportunity for you? Um, they come out, of course, earlier and earlier for funding as the overall funding climate is changing. And uh, I know we, we, we said we weren't going to go there, but I think this fall's uh, political situation in the UK is going to probably decide a lot of what the future direction of those different trends are going to be looking like. Is there also just a byproduct, not to pump you guys up too much with with you guys but i mean is there a growing awareness of the services that you're providing at the department of, uh, for international trade where uh your resources are are clearly providing some benefits and there's got to be more awareness so if you've got somebody who's going to help you out um i think that could probably speed up the decision process too um i mean that definitely be. I, I wish I could say that. I'm I'm not sure what the kind of overall volumes are, but based on just kind of our our own internal metrics, there's definitely been a, a growth in the number of companies that have started to figure out that we're out here and we exist. Um, I know we we've as as the Department for International Trade specifically only been around for a few years. There have been some other incarnations in the past. Um, but as far as kind of name name recognition goes, it, it's a, definitely a growing trend. But I think we're we're on the right track. Uh, we've got some really great leadership in place that's not tied to politics, so they're going to be around for a little while. And uh, you know, it, it's definitely definitely a great resource. I, I wish that uh, more companies knew that we were out here. Almost everything that we do is absolutely free, and uh, we are all. Sworn to, sworn to secrecy, we take actual, uh, have to get our, our actual security clearances and everything to, to be here, and everything that we do is considered commercially confidential. So uh, unless the company tells us that it, we can talk about them publicly or they've said something publicly themselves, uh, we, we keep tight-lipped on everybody's plans. Well, I'm new to the knowing about what the Department for International Trade does, and it's a shame that you're one of the best kept secrets uh, out there in the UK government. <laughs> and the more uh, we can um, advocate for you and the more people learn about the services you have both here and abroad, I think the better it's going to be for a lot of organizations and, and a lot of people, because uh, one of the things is just really unique. And the reason why Silicon Valley is the epicenter for all this great tech innovation and growth and so forth is uh, unlike 
generations past where if anyone, in order to succeed, you had to literally do it yourself. If you didn't steal it from somebody else, you did it yourself and you grew bigger and bigger and you did it on your own for yourself. And, and you wouldn't, because of competitive reasons or envy or fear, you wouldn't share the secret sauce with anybody else. That's not what happens here. This is probably one of the most uh, collaborative environments out here where there are always people looking to provide some kind of support, uh, some kind of assistance, mentorship, whatever, sometimes for, you know, for, for obvious profit uh, motives, others for altruistic because they kind of have the vision that, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats. So from accelerators to incubators to mentors to angels, sources of funding and everything, there are so many resources out here getting founders from zero to one and then from one to two and then from two to Google, um, you know, this is just another, th you know, great resource out there. And it's been an absolute pleasure learning about this. And Jacob, uh, if, if there are people out here that would like to just benefit from all the things you have, how can they get a hold of you? Sure. Um, I'm on LinkedIn is probably the, the easiest place. Um, just find me under my name, Jacob Whitish, W-H-I-T-I-S-H. Uh, likewise, anybody can feel free to email me directly at uh, jacob.whitish at mobile.trade.gov.uk. <laughs> we can probably put that in the we'll show sure notes. We'll make sure we have that, that whole, we'll have that, mouth, we'll have that whole mouth, mouthful in the, in the show notes and so forth. And I would, I would also say, uh, unlike me from time to time, I may not be on my LinkedIn on a daily basis. Jacob is on it hourly. So if you put a uh, connect uh, request out there, you're going to get a response uh, almost in real time. So I, I can personally vouch <laughs> for that. Jacob, thank you. It's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you, and we will speak again. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Patrick.